have to confess a little bit. I, I, I'm still on a bit of a high. Uh, last night, through a friend, uh, Jen and I, last minute, were given tickets to the Paul McCartney concert. Have you ever been to such a thing? This man is 77 years old, and he rocked for three hours. Um, so there's good days ahead for many of us here. I just have in my head, like, band on the run the whole time. If I ever get out of here, I'm going to give it all away to a registered charity. Anyway, but we have other things to do here. Sasquatch, Godzilla, King Kong, Loch Ness, Goblin, a ghoul, a zombie with no conscience, monsters to scare us. How scary could we create something to be? Sea monster. And we grow up and we kind of project fears into these literary or film type things. And our fears take on different forms. We fear something terrible happening. Our world comes apart. That which once was solid, we fear losing. In a church, most people are in the building one day a week. I mean, many of you, not all of you, but many of you, especially in the summer, right? when some of the programs are done, but actually there were more people in this building on almost every other day this week than today. And some terrible things happened in the church this week. Monstrous. Apocalyptic, maybe. You had no idea of the terrible things, did you? Let me tell you about what happened in the church this week. We had a flood. Can you smell it? Does anybody have a really sensitive nose? You can't, can you? That's just the person beside you. (laughs) Unrelated to the flood event, we had 150 extras. They're called, a few of us went to the breakfast tent. They're filming a Netflix series across the street at school. And they're using the church for 150 extras coming and going. And they told those of us who were helping, especially because we helped a lot, when when this flood started, you should come and share breakfast with us in the morning at the food tents. And it's, wow, what a breakfast we had. And that was unrelated, having all these extras in here to the flood event. A few of us were out, what was it, Wednesday? I don't know what it was, whatever day. You lose track during these kinds of things. And Keith got a call on his phone by from one of the location managers, you know, with this type of thing and all kinds of really important things going on in here. And the call said something like this. You'll have to ask Keith for the exact wording. Um, There's water everywhere in the basement. And so we thought, well, they must be exaggerating when they say everywhere. Maybe a pipe has burst or something. That wouldn't be everywhere. And so we came up, and the water was everywhere. Carpets getting soaked. The elevator shaft was filled with water, like like quite a bit, so that when the elevator would go down and you took the elevator back up, you'd hear this beautiful, relaxing rain sound, which was the water coming off the undercarriage of the elevator. And there was water in the stairwells, 
and there was water in the opposite corner of the building, and there was water in the electrical room, and there was water all along the main wall in the big room, and people's bags were getting soaked because it was so wet, all these extras who had their bags on the floor. In the Bible, one of the metaphors used for the end of all things, when things will be renewed, Scripture says we won't need the sun because God's glory will shine. But there's another metaphor and another image that something else disappears, and that's the sea. There'll be no more sea. Because this kind of water is like is confusion. And back in those days, they knew a lot less about the sea than we do now. It was just a place of darkness, expanse, You know what it's like to even look out at Howe Sound as you're driving along or take a small boat across to Anvil or something, and all you're aware of is that you're on the top of something that you basically have no idea what's underneath. So the sea was something that was confusing and terrifying and dark and deadly. And imagine if you think like they used to during many of these, in this time when scripture was written and compiled, that the earth was flat. So you look out at the sea somewhere like this and there's the edge of everything. Vast, dark, empty, and dangerous. So when the plumbers were here, these were not young fellows. These plumbers that finally came here, modern drainage. I don't know how modern it is, but anyway. Um, And, you know, they walked around. Keith walked them around mostly. I just kind of tagged along like I knew what was going on, but I don't. And uh, they just kept saying things like, oh, like that's not what you want a plumber to hear, want to hear from a plumber, right? And then this, never seen this before. (laughs) So they told us, "Um, our building is being swallowed up. No, (laughs) not yet. It's, uh, It's a drainage issue. And apparently we're all going to be okay. But if it starts to get sloshy around the bottom of your chair, just raise your hand. The sea in the Bible is the unknown, the other than God. The things that we face that we would rather not face. The things that take our breath away and we think, how could there be anything after this? When we talk about Christian mission in the world, bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ, one of the things with which we're going to have to come to terms is evil. Terrible things. Evil, the violent, the grotesque. And by grotesque, I mean the distorted and the twisted, the upending. I don't mean the word grotesque as it's been used against people by terrible religious thinking. You know, defining somebody who doesn't quite fit as grotesque, that's a sin to do that. I mean the actually grotesque. There's a theological word for the question. One way of posing the question is, what about evil? And there is nobody here who has the answer to that question. But at times you have fear. The theological word for this question is theodicy want to write it down, it's T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. 
It means a particular kind of question that can't be answered. And it's one that your friends, particularly those outside of Christian faith or in this culture that is largely secular, rightfully ask. Don't get upset at them for asking this. They say, you believe that God is all-powerful, right? And do you nod your head? Yes. I believe that God is all-powerful. And you believe that God is all-loving. Well, yes, of course I believe that God is all-loving. So that's a theodicy. Then why is there evil? Then why is there suffering? then why am I facing this terrible possibility of darkness? N.T. Wright, one of his many books, this one called Evil and the Justice of God, you can read it if you like kind of a primer on this type of stuff. It's one of his more basic books. He writes big theological books and small, more accessible books. This is one of the second. He says that in this book, he's going to do two things. Lay out the problem. Here's the issue. And then secondly, hope to find a way to properly speak about evil and what to do about it. So we don't have this big, long scripture text this morning because some scripture text just puts something right in front of you, and it's enough. I mean, we could go deeper into the teaching, but we're introducing this today. So 1 Peter 5 simply says, your enemy. That would be enough for the text. And for those of us who are Christians or for those who ask that kind of... What do you mean our enemy? Your enemy. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's an image in Scripture. Monsters and terrors exist in the Bible. The devil... Demons, Leviathan, I think a Leviathan's on your little bulletin cover. And here a devouring lion. Do we have an enemy? Do we have an adversary? What are we to think? C.S. Lewis, who understood both sides of this question, he said the greatest trick that the devil played, this isn't a direct quote, but he said the greatest trick that the devil plays is making people believe that there is no devil. That's true. But it's also true, and C.S. Lewis has spoken in this second way as well, among other theologians, who say that another great ploy of the devil is to get you always thinking about evil. So that you crown yourself the person who's going to rid the world of evil. Let's go kill those people because they're bad. And then you become a devil yourself. On one side... This is the side maybe more in secular culture now. One side would say maybe there's no such thing as evil and the devil and human progress will eventually get us past this. I can't accept this. A wonderful theologian and writer named Marilyn McCord Adams wrote a book a number of years ago called Horrendous Evil and the Goodness of God. Isn't that a good title? And she did, I mean, it's... I could read you a list that would make you kind of sick to your stomach because what she does in that book is she talks about the most psychotic evil things that you could imagine and how are we to talk about a good God but also how could we ever deny evil 
when these kinds of things still happen in the world. The other side, one side is to deny that evil is present. Notice I'll never say, unless I make a mistake, I'll never say the word evil is real. Because evil is not real in the way that good is real. Evil is distortion and lie all the time. So one side denies that evil is present. The other side sees a devil and a demon under every rock. You didn't get a parking spot because Satan did something. It would take an astounding lack of maturity to think that whatever opposition or difficulty you face is the devil. That's an infantile way of thinking. Childish. I feel uncomfortable now, so it must be something evil that's against me. I can explain my difficulties by the devil. Your child in that thinking. You could, it's so easy to do, right? If I face difficulty in my life, let's say you are hoping that I do, and I face difficulty in my life, you could say, well, that's obviously because Todd something with the devil, right? And I could easily say, it's spiritual warfare. The evidence of my goodness is that something's against me. We need to mature. All these bad things happen, so obviously I'm doing something right. It might be true, but we should grow up and have a little more complex thinking. In Christian history, there are many images of terror, fear, horrible judgment. Many, if not most, almost all of these images come from the medieval age. Actually, our depictions of monstrosities and evil have more to do with Dante's Inferno than they do with the Bible. So what Dante did in this work called, well, in in the Inferno, was he described going to hell, just as a visitor. And most, there's a lot of these in history, not only Christian history, but other faith traditions. Um, I'll, I'll remind you again, Western Christianity is the only branch of Christianity that has the concept of an eternal hell. Orthodox Christianity doesn't have that. Other forms of Christianity doesn't have that. There's hell in other places, but in other interpretations of Scripture, but it's not eternal. So in Western Christianity, what happened is that people like Dante wrote these things about like these circles of hell. And if you read Dante's Inferno, the thing that strikes me the most about it is he goes like first circle, second circle, third circle, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. But he describes not only what the terrors are like there, he describes who's there. And guess who's there? All the people that Dante didn't like. Politicians, people, and the people getting the worst tortures are the ones that he liked the least. Hildegard of Bingen, apparently she was quite a composer. So she was an abbess over, like a, not a monastery, because this was, this was women. But, um, so she had talents, apparently. When was she around in 1100, something like that? 
when a lot of these images were being solidified. And a lot of these spiritual leaders said that they went and saw hell in a vision or something. And Hildegard of Bingen described hell as she saw it. She was also, this is in the, she was also a, no, a grim abbess and a noted killjoy. Apparently, if people were having fun, she thought something must be bad. And she was in charge of people. So she describes hell as she saw it. You ready? It's a land full of boiling pitch and sulfur, and around were wasps and scorpions, and I saw a great fire, and some souls were burned, and others were girded with snakes, and others drew in and again exhaled fire-like breath, while malignant spirits cast stones at them. And I saw a great swamp and a black cloud of smoke, and in the swamp there was a mass of little worms. And then her line, I think Hildegard might have used lines like the one you're about to hear to try to get people in line. And then the line. And here were the souls of those in the world who delighted in foolish merriment. Here's a key point in our understanding and our maturing of our understanding of evil. We ought not to project against those that we would identify as sinful and problem and opponent. What is offending me about your behavior, what is sinful about your behavior, therefore means that you will suffer these things. There was a document in ancient times. Many of these documents went around. They're not scriptural by any means, but some of them had great influence on the understanding of the church. And in one of those documents called the Apocalypse of Peter, there's another description of hell and who's there. Women come unto the place prepared for them hanging by their tongues, wherewith they have blasphemed, and under them an unquenchable fire that they escape it not. Corrupt women, I think whoever wrote this might have had a problem with women. Corrupt women hanging by their hair and their neck and cast into the pit, and the men that lay with them shall be hung by their loins in that place of fire. Not scripture, please. When my friend Rick went to camp when he was a kid, I've never said this before here, I've told some people. Um, he was just a kid. He had a counselor. It was Anvil Island, but it was years ago. And they were talking to the counselor, and somebody said, can you explain to us, and even this word is terrible now, so, but it's the word they use, can you explain to us where like deformed children come from? What happens there? And the camp counselor said, well, that's what happens if people have premarital sex. See, it's the same impulse. It's fear. It's monstrosity. I have no reason to judge that man who said that. He probably was told it. But it's the wrong way to think about evil and the wrong way to think about sin. It has nothing to do with my Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope we're done with it. Enlisting the horrors and the monsters against our sinful enemies. For the first hundreds of years of the Christian church, you don't remember this because you weren't there. Paul McCartney might be old, but he's not that old. For the first hundreds of years of the Christian church, the devil and evil were not thought of in this 
psychotic way. It was more in line with the, with the verse we read this morning. Your adversary. That's the word. It's a Hebrew word translated in the New Testament into Greek. But your adversary, the devil. Or your adversary, evil. It was not this thing that was written to um, control other people with terrible fear. was adversary. The Hebrew word was actually Satan with a little kind of ha in front of it. Hebrew is a different language in terms of the vowels and the sounds. There are no actual vowels in there, just sounds. And so it was kind of ha-Satan, which meant the Satan. Which meant Satan is not a he. It's an it. Your adversary. So this is to stand against a secular culture that would say there is no such thing as terrible evil. But it's to stand against a culture that kind of sees the devil behind every rock. So your adversary, which included those things within yourself that move you away from the love of Jesus Christ, particularly in how you relate to other people. You have an adversary. You know that. I don't have to tell you that, right? But your adversary is not that other person. It's the enemy. And then Augustine, hundreds of years into the early church, took particularly Matthew chapter 25, you know, when they separate the sheep and the goats, which is a parable about caring for the least of these. Remember that? That's what the parable is about. It's not about judgment. But Augustine took that parable and drew a very particular vision from it, from using the end where there's a separation and talk of fire and destruction. And from that talk, which the church hadn't done until that point, used that last bit of the parable, which is meant to say this is the separation, and said basically we can build a a concept of evil and maybe even eternity from this. church hadn't done that before. And then, in, then years and years later, at the Reformation, when the Catholic Church was the church in the West, right? Europe, and the Catholic Church was the church. And in 500 years ago, basically about right now, this Reformation starts. We wouldn't exist as this church without it. And the Catholic Church is desperately trying to hold on to to control. And so what do they do? They draw psychotic pictures of judgment to say that's what our enemies are going to get. That's the history of the understanding of some of these monstrosities. Now, you might not know that, and it might be terribly troubling for you to even think that, because you grew up in your 50 years or 60 years or 40 years with this particular way of seeing things. There's another warning, and that is to be careful about imagining some equal battle between good and evil, like God is on one side and the devil is on the others. This is uh, Star Wars. Have any of you seen Star Wars? Yes, you have. Don't put up your hand. What's the key thing in Star Wars? The Force. And there's the light side of the Force and the dark side of the Force, right? That's what's called Manichaeism. That actually was around during Augustine's time. 
part of the motivation for him writing some of what he did was to stand against the, the, the wrong thinking of Manichaeism, which said, there's God and there's the devil and they're in equal battle. That's not proper. It's not right. And it's not biblical. You go to Romans chapter 8 that James read for us. Listen again. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Scripture presents absolutely no equal battle between good and evil. It just is not there. God's word and revelation coming to Mary and Joseph and so many more and the angels to the shepherds. And would you hear these words, even though there are horrendous evils in this world still, would you hear these words as Christ comes? Do not be afraid. There's a mature way of looking at evil. And this is it. You can differ with me. I just think you'd be wrong. The question, I'm going to read this a few times so you get it. The question of sin, death, and the devil can only be asked in one way. Over what does grace triumph? Want to hear it again? The question of sin, death, and the devil can only be asked in one way. Over what does grace triumph? In the end. One last point. We ought not to see evil as existing only or primarily in the other. It's so easy. You could do almost a cartoon picture right now in the United States of America where Christians, who I'm sorry, if you, I have no idea how Christians have come to think in, some of, in the ways supporting some of the things. Where so some Christians would line up and say, to treat humans in this way, now you draw the news story, is wrong and it's evil. And other Christians on some other side would say, this terrible thing, this thing that's happened in the world for years and years is wrong and evil. And so now you see we line up and we can work against the evil on the other side. I hope you can be more mature than that. Day after day and year after year, I have people coming to me, telling me consistently how the things that they oppose are evil. I don't think you're grown up when you do that. (laughs) How are the things in our own hearts evil? That might help us get somewhere. That's a conversation worth having.
It's not primarily in the other. Jesus' most extensive teaching about evil is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which is difficult for us as Christians because the point of the parable is forbearance. In other words, don't try to rip up all the evil in the world. It's tough to take. He says he'll deal with it in the end, and he will. Remember that we are prone to hurt others, to convince ourselves that we're doing good. I I try to think in history, I would think there are times historically where someone says, I just want to be evil. But even the most heinous crimes and even genocides committed in human history have been done supposedly in the name of doing something good. It was Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. You know the famous line, don't you? This is the actual line. The line between good and evil passes not through states or between classes nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. Humble yourself. This is one of the most astonishing books I've ever read. It's, it's called An Interrupted Life and Letters from Westerbork. And it's the diary entries of a young woman in Amsterdam before and during the Second World War. She was very kind of progressive in a way. I don't mean that, in, I'm not making a value statement on it, but she was like a, I don't know what the word you'd use, cosmopolitan or something. The first like 70 pages of the book are diary entries talking about should she be with this lover or this lover. It's that kind of. She's Jewish in her faith. And as it gets further and further into the book, she's got a degree in Russian literature, even though she's in like her mid-20s. And she can write beautifully. I've been to the place where she was murdered when she was 29 years old. She wound up being killed at Auschwitz. But her route there was Amsterdam tightening under the grip of the Nazis and then in kind of a sub-camp named Westerbork where she had a job even. And then eventually she was told, you get on the transport. The last entry was found beside railway tracks. Someone picked up a piece of paper and it was her last entry, and then we know that she was murdered. I can't remember what date, but we do know it, at 29 years old. One of the most, it's haunting to me, because it's such a call. By the time she knows she's going to be killed, and her family, I, I still can't get this, you guys, so, except it calls me to something higher. She talks about seeing the guards, It's hard to say this. And she writes how she feels sorry for them. And she basically writes, don't feel sorry for me, though I'm about to die. She's 29 doing this. But feel sorry for them because they have become so dehumanized. 
what evil does. It's astonishing. Her maturity. I want to read you an extensive part to end. I love this book. She's writing to a friend. I don't know, I don't know what year. It says September 23rd. She's uh, still in Westerbork here, I think. But there's guards around. And her friend is named Klaus, K-L-A-A-S. And she's writing about how she sees, I would suppose, evil. And it's going to end, though she's of Jewish faith, it's going to end with this appeal. There's more and more gospel verses as you go further in her writing. Matthew and Mark. Listen to this extended section. It's about how she sees somebody who is Jewish himself and himself caught up in this terrible thing. But she sees the reality of darkness and evil not just in the people who are persecuting her and her family and others, but in her and her family and the people who are being persecuted in some cases. So listen. She says, we shan't get anywhere with hatred, Klaus. Appearances are often so deceptive. Take one of my colleagues. I see him often in my thoughts. The most striking thing about him is his inflexible, rigid neck. He hates our persecutors with an undying hatred, presumably with good reason. But he himself is a bully. He would make a model concentration camp guard. I often watched him standing beside the camp entrance to admit fellow hunted Jews, and I remember him throwing a few grubby pieces of licorice to a sobbing three-year-old across the table and saying gruffly, See that you don't get it all over your face. Thinking back, I'm sure... It was more awkwardness and shyness than lack of goodwill that made him so curt. He simply couldn't hit the right tone. When I saw him walking among others with his rigid neck and imperious look and his ever-present short pipe, I always thought all he needs is a whip in his hand. It would suit him to perfection. But I still never hated him. I found him much too fascinating for that. Now and then I felt really terribly sorry for him. He had such an unhappy, miserable mouth, if the truth be told. The mouth of a three-year-old who has been unable to get his way with his mother. He himself had meanwhile passed the 30-year mark, a clever fellow, a successful lawyer, one of the most able in all Holland, father of two children. But the mouth of a dissatisfied three-year-old had been stamped on his face. There was never any real contact between him and others. And he would give such covert, hungry looks whenever other people were friendly to each other. I could see him through the window. Later, I heard a few things about him from a colleague we had known for years. During the German invasion, he jumped into the street from a third-floor window but failed to kill himself. Later, he threw himself under a car, but again to no avail. He then spent a few months in a mental, institu in mental institution. It was fear, just fear. I also learned that his wife had to walk on tiptoe in the house because he could not bear the slightest noise and he used to storm at his terrified children. I felt such deep, deep pity for him. 
What sort of life was that? In the end, he hanged himself. Then she has in brackets, I must make sure to note that his name be taken off this card index. Klaus, all I really wanted to say is this. We have so much work to do on ourselves that we shouldn't even be thinking of hating our so-called enemies. We are hurtful enough to one another as it is. And I don't really know what I mean when I say that there are bullies and bad characters among our own people, for no one is really bad deep down. I should have liked to reach out to that man with all his fears. I should have liked to trace the source of his panic, to drive him ever deeper into himself. That is the only thing we can do, Klaus, in times like these. And you, Klaus, give a tired and despondent wave and say, but what purpose to do takes such a long time? We really don't have that much time. And I reply, what you want is something people have been trying to get for the last 2,000 years and for many more thousand years before that. In fact, ever since mankind has existed on earth. And what do you think the result has been, if I may ask you? You say... And I repeat with the same old passion, although I'm gradually beginning to think that I'm being tiresome. It's the only thing we can do, Klaus. I see no alternative. Each of us must turn inward and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. And remember that every atom of hate we add to this world makes it still more inhospitable. And you, Klaus, dogged old class fighter that you've always been dismayed and astonished. Remember, they're Jewish, these people. (laughs) You say, but that, that is nothing but Christianity. And I, amused by your confusion, retort quite coolly, yes, Christianity, and why ever not? My theological hero, Karl Barth, helpfully speaks of evil and the devil as a third agent. Evil and the devil are not God or equal to God, and they're not God's creature. Something else. Evil is only known by what it negates. First Corinthians. This is our hope. This is the lens through which we see even horrendous things. Christ will reign over all of the disordered powers of creation. Christ will reign over all of the disordered powers of creation, even the darkness of my heart, even over my own sin. Lord Jesus, would you burn it up? I can't get rid of it myself. Come, Holy Spirit. Let me pray. So, Father God, help us to mature. I thank you for this young woman's voice who so 
poignantly sees darkness around her, but then has the courage to look even into herself. And I still hate that she was murdered. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.